Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text from the 21st chapter of Revelation, these words, speaking of the city of God. The Holy Spirit writes, And nothing impure will ever enter into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is our text. Dear friends in our Lord Jesus, Heaven or hell, your choice for six pounds, no refunds. That's the title and the heading of an article in the London Times, in which in part reads as this, If you're thinking of shuffling off this mortal coil, it's best then to be prepared. Funeral arrangements, wills, preemptive farewells to friends and family will make the end so much more reassuring. And now to ease the passage into a stress-free afterlife, you can book a first-class ticket to heaven, no more judgment day, no more temptation from the other place, no more tiresome long lines at the pearly gates for just twelve ninety-five or six pounds. Heaven is but a ride away. And so what will twelve ninety-five get you? The essential travel kit, not only a first-class ticket ride, but an official heaven identification card and a mini-information guide so that you can avoid culture shock. Upgrade to 1595, and you can also obtain an all-access VIP pass, which includes admission to the land of milk and honey. And if damp conditions never did suit you, worry not, for exactly the same price, you can swap hymns and the Bible for other items at reservespotinhell.com. With a 100% money-back guarantee in all of the packages, there's simply nothing to lose. Book now or forever hold thy peace. Don't be too hard on the British. While the ad indeed intends to mock religion in general and Christianity in particular, and while certainly there are no lack of atheistic-type organizations in London or in England who would say and write and pay for ads such as this. This came from our good old U.S. of A. in Tacoma, Washington. Mocking the notion of life after death, mocking the notion that there are indeed any reservations of any kind required for it, and mock it as they might, but ironically their mocking claim is in part right. Scripture does talk about a reservation being required for heaven. It talks about a reservation that is far and away the most important reservation that you will ever make in your entire life. It talks about a reservation in a time called eternity, a reservation for a place called the city of God, a city that St. John describes in our text for today, a city that Scripture tells us in the context of this text that needs no sun, needs no moon to shine upon it. Why? Because the glory of God is its light, and the Lamb of God is its lamp. And then it goes on in Revelation to describe, as we have heard also, how the city is populated. We heard about that in the epistle lesson for today. A great multitude which no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and all languages, standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, the Lamb who will be their shepherd, it said, 
who will guide them to springs of living water, and God himself shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a city. What a city, dear friends. The city of our God. At 3 o'clock this past Wednesday, our sister in Christ, Ruth Allfeld, is now there. There were others that we love who have gone before us, many of them named in our commemoration of the faithful departed, but a few moments ago. In due time, in God's time, we all want to be in that eternal city, don't we? I want to see God's face there, don't you? I want to experience the mystery of his presence there, its warmth, the scripture describes it in the eternal light that emanates from his face and warms his people as he wipes away every tear from their eyes, don't you? I want to know all that God intends for his eternity to be for me and for mine, for you and for yours, and to sit and to stand and to live again and to love again with family and friends and the faith who have gone there before us, don't you? In due time, in God's time, don't you want to experience all of the humanly unimaginable and explicable things that his unlimited energy has created there for you to be able to enjoy? I want that for me and for mine, don't you? But God's word clearly states, as we heard in today's text, that this is a holy city. You heard it yourself from the first words of our text for today. Nothing, it says, nothing impure will ever enter into it. Nothing impure. You see, God's standard for admission to his eternal city, the necessary requirement for passage into his presence, is absolute holiness. It's perfect purity. Nothing short of absolute holiness. Holiness and perfect purity, nothing less will do, for to accept anything less would require God to be less than who he is and what he is. And so, quoting him, St. Peter says, It is written, You must be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Standards that are well beyond our sinful reach, requirements that exceed every mortal's grasp, no matter what he might do in life or accomplish in life or think he is in life, it's all beyond our mortal grasp. Weighty words that bend us down to our knees as they're intended to do and leave us asking then, Lord, what are we to do? What hope of heaven ultimately then do we have if it's absolute purity required before we can enter into your holy city and after all on the basis of the words that we've heard nothing impure will enter into it and here I am as Isaiah was a man of unclean lips standing among a people of unclean lips and we wonder how can we possibly stand then and be in the presence of the almighty eternally enjoying all of those things that he has prepared our sinful nature alone setting aside all of our sinful deeds and thought and word and deed. Just our sinful nature alone, because I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me, my sinful nature alone would exclude me and you also from entrance and then add to it the sinful things that we have repeatedly thought in the course of our lives, the sinful deeds that we have done to hurt one another and add to that at life's end 
all of the good that we had the opportunity to do in life and we never did do for one selfish reason or the other. And you add that up any way that you want to. And you sum it up any way that you can and the universal mathematics of it all makes it painfully clear to us. It leaves us all coming up far, far short of the glory of God. It doesn't take a master mathematician to conclude with St. Paul, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And do you know what that means? It means that left to ourselves, we're left out. Left to ourselves, you are left out. It means that left to ourselves, we have no reservation. But thank God, he did not leave us to ourselves. God has not left us to ourselves and at all. Indeed, as a Lutheran theologian, Johannes Quenstedt, so beautifully put it a hundred years after Luther died, Quenstedt put it this way. He said, this is the love of God. Rather than banish men eternally from heaven, he removed himself from heaven, clothed himself with flesh, became the creature of a creature and enclosed himself in the womb of the virgin and was wrapped in rags and laid in hay and housed in a barn. Nor does his love stop there, Quinstead says, but after a life spent in poverty and adversities, this love drives Christ to the ground on Olivet and it binds him in chains and it delivers him to jailers and it cuts him with a lash and it crowns him with thorns and it fastens him with nails to the cross and it gives him to drink of the eternal cup of bitterness. And finally, he said, this love compels him to die and to die for ad adversaries and for enemies continuously. And in, in these sundry ways, Christ, who thirsts so greatly for our salvation, declares his love and his mercy toward the whole human race. Thus Quenstead. You see, instead of banishing us from heaven, he removed himself from heaven for our sake, in order to secure for us a reservation that we could never have secured for ourselves, a reservation in that city of God, that Jerusalem, the golden, of which we'll sing in today's last hymn, the city of God into which nothing impure will never enter into it. But then, thankfully, aren't you thankful indeed that it adds, but only those who will enter into it whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's who gets in. That's those for whom the reservation is made, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Thank God, dear friend, that your name is written in that book of life. And know this for certain, it's not there because you put it there. It's not there because we scribbled away our names there. You could scribble eternity away with words excusing your sin or highlighting your good works in life and still never inscribe anything that counts for anything there. But friends, God in Christ has done for you what you and a thousand years and a millennium could not have done for yourselves. God has written our names where we could not write them. He has made reservations for us where we could never have made them for ourselves by his grace the Lamb of God, with his own precious blood, has inscribed your name indelibly in his book of life. 
The book of life, that same divine register that's mentioned repeatedly in the Old Testament, the register of life, which is referred to by the Apostle Paul when he speaks of his fellow workers as, quote, those whose names are written in the book of life, unquote. The divine register of grace in which our names are recorded even before we were around to record them. For Scripture, speaking of it, says that our names were written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of, of, of the Lamb who has been slain. The divine register in which our reservation has been recorded and secured by the one who long ago assumed full responsibility and assumed full payment for all of your sins. Most have done it before. A father who makes a reservation for a daughter's wedding reception. A mother who does it perhaps for a a birthday party of a child or a son or a daughter who makes reservations for the 50th anniversary celebration of parents, or perhaps is an owner of a business making a Christmas dinner reservation for all the members of his company. And what do you do? You pay the deposit that's required and then you're responsible for the bill that's incurred for the entire group, for the entire party. All the other members of the group get in free as long as they're identified as a part of the group under the name of the one who has made the reservation for the entire party. And it happens all the time, doesn't it? And in a far greater sense, in a spiritual sense, it's happened once and for all with all of us and with Christ Jesus as well. Assuming full responsibility for the payment for your sins and for mine upon the cross, Jesus removes from the ledger all sin's debt that we have incurred over the course of time. Double for all of your sins, the prophet writes. Double. No need to wonder if payment was enough in your case. If your sins were greater than the payment Christ made, double payment has been made for all of your sins. In essence, that's what Luther says when he puts it so eloquently and he talks about the value of Christ's blood that was shed for you and for me. And he says, what will you do when you hear Paul say that such an inestimable price was given for your sins? Will you bring your own works then to try to add to what he has already paid? What are all of these, your works? What are, what are all of the works of all men and the sufferings of all the martyrs as compared to that of Christ? What is all the obedience of the holy angels even compared with the Son of God given? And given in the most shameful way into death, even death on a cross, so that all of his most precious blood was shed and for your sins. If you looked, Luther says, at this price, you would take all of your works and all of your supposed merits and you would curse them and you would defile them and spit upon them and damn them and consign them all to hell. Therefore, it is an intolerable and a horrible blasphemy to think up some work by which you presume to placate God when you see that he cannot be placated except by this immense, infinite price, the death and the blood of his only begotten Son. One drop, one drop, which is more precious than all of creation. His blood, Christ's, pays the price for your reservation. 
And his perfect life, St. Paul says, qualifies us to share in the inheritance of his saints in light. You see the reservations already been made? So simply fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who made that reservation for you, who paid that reservation for you, who says to you, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. He's gone there, and he wants us there, and by his grace and through his means of grace, he's going to get us there. What does Scripture say? He who began a good work in you, namely your salvation, is going to bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how does he do it? How does he do it so invisibly? And so quietly he comes to us now and he makes us his own through holy baptism wherein he places his name upon us and makes us part of the group even as all mankind was paid for by his reserving sin. Placing his name upon us as we've seen him do to so many of our children over the course of time in order that we then in his name might be able to gain entrance into the eternal and holy city of God. And that's why even now, he comes to us still, right here, receiving, as you do this morning, his very body and his blood and consecrated bread and wine. He secures us in the faith and he prepares us, soul and body, for the place reserved for you at the table of the Lord of the feasts. My reservation, you can say with absolute certainty, has been made made for me by Jesus Christ, indelibly inscribed and etched in the book of life by the blood of the Lamb, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing, in all of heaven, upon all of earth, or in hell itself, absolutely nothing that can erase what he has already done for me. His word to you is that good. His word is that good. It cannot be reversed. It cannot be undone. Hear Luther one more time on this All Saints Day when he speaks of what that word has already accomplished in you, his people. For the word of God, he says, is the sanctuary above all sanctuaries, yea, the only one which we Christians know and have. For though we had the bones of all the saints or all holy and consecrated garments upon a heap somewhere, still that would help us nothing. For all that is a dead thing which can sanctify nobody and can make nobody holy. But God's word, God's word is the treasure that sanctifies everything and makes it holy. And by which even all of the saints themselves were sanctified at whatever hour then. At whatever hour God's word is taught, God's word is preached, God's word is heard, read, or meditated upon. Then, there, that person, that day, that work are sanctified thereby, not because of the external work, but because of the word which makes saints of us all. All Saints Day is indeed the day to celebrate the grace of God in the lives of those who have gone in the faith before us. It is indeed their day. And Though we feebly struggle, while they in glory shine, it's our day too.
for we're all saints in Christ Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.